I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Do you all get sick of hearing me say week after week, today's guest is so special. Well, I never get sick of saying that because every guest on the podcast is so dynamic in their own way. I cannot help but introduce each guest like that. Our guest today is Mark Warren. He is the chief medical officer of the EMILY program. And I'm telling you, we are in for such an incredible conversation. Mark and I talk about the shame that men carry with eating disorders, the fact that people are not asking men the right questions and make them feel invisible with their eating disorder. And at the very end, we even talk about drugs and eating disorders. It is a really, really exciting episode and I am incredibly happy to have all of you listen along. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk, with recovered professionals. I know I say this every week, but my God, we are in for such an exciting episode today. My guest is Mark Warren, who is the Chief Medical Officer of the EMILY program. So Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. It's fantastic to be here. So thrilled to have you today for so many different reasons. So Mark, before we go into sort of the actual interview of the of the podcast, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do, who you are, how I have the pleasure of knowing you. Or... <laughs> well, right, right now, what I think I am is a junior epidemiologist. Um, since um, as the chief medical officer of the EMILY program, I had to switch my entire career about three months ago. And... Um, so, uh, I, so I am a virus expert as of today. Um, before that, I, I'm a practicing psychiatrist. Um, I've worked in eating disorders for about uh, 25 years. Um, I uh, was in private practice. I worked at a hospital. Ultimately, um, started the Cleveland Center for Eating Disorders with Lucene Wisniewski, and then following that, joined the Emily program and now work with with the large organizations. Fantastic. I also want to say that um, I appreciate very, very much your coming on right now because I do know that there's so much going on in the world. And as the chief medical officer, your time, as as all of us, our time is very valuable. Um, and so I just, I, I want to thank every guest who's coming on during this time period because it, it's it's tough. So thank you again. 
Thanks. Right back to you. I mean, what you're doing, particularly in this moment, means a lot. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Mark, one of the reasons why I am so honored to have you on this podcast today is I myself, in my own practice, have a, a handful of men that I treat. I don't like the word treat, that I work with. I know they feel alone. They feel like a fish out of water with something that even people with an eating disorder, even, even women feel like a fish out of water. I know that we're working through a time in our life where men do not typically present with eating disorders because of some of the implications and some of the labeling and whatnot. We're dealing with transgender, all these things. What I want to focus on though specifically today is men and eating disorders. And I'd like to know just what your thoughts are about the male population and how are they so underrepresented? And why don't we start there? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, a number of ways to come at that. I mean, I think, I, I think we, if we start with history, and I, I do like starting with history, um, the, the first article written about eating disorders came out in around the 1870s. Um, and uh, at that point, men and women were equally represented in the article. Um, towards the end of the 19th century, um, the anorexia, we know it was renamed anorexia hysterique by a French psychiatrist. And then when the uh, world of psychoanalysis took over the field of psychiatry, they developed their series of hysteria, of hysterias. And um, one of the seven hysterias was uh, anorexia. Um, so from 1900, say, to around 1960, in psychoanalysis, you're not gonna, you may know this, if you don't, it's, it's unbelievable to know. Um, psychoanalysis considered anorexia a fear of oral impregnation. I am going to say that I have been in this field for 15 years, and I'm actually a little embarrassed to say, Mark, I never heard that. Yeah. Now, well, it's been buried deep. Um, yeah. Over on the medical side of the world, um, anorexia was considered a disorder of, of an endocrine disorder, endocrine disorder related to estrogen. So pretty much neither of those offer a lot of space for men to get into the conversation. Um, as the field slowly starts to change, and it doesn't really start to change until bulimia um, becomes um, a better understood diagnostic entity, um, the definitions start to change. But until the DSM-4, loss of menses was part of the diagnosis. So again, it's, it's, if you're a guy, it's unlikely that these disease, that this conversation is speaking to you. I will tell you something that goes right to the heart of it, I think. Functionally, every diagnosis, every test, every screening mechanism that exists have all been normed in women. There are no diagnostic scales, EDE, EDQ, none of them that had any men in the norming. Um, all of them were specifically excluded. And if you look at studies published in the uh, IJED, um, historically, over 75% of them, male is an exclusion criteria. So again, it, it's, it's built into it. I mean, we were not lucky, of course, when Hilda Brook came by and hijacked 
the psychoanalytic thing and told us that these was a disease of upper middle class, thin white women who wanted to be a little bit skinnier because they were looking for husbands. Um, and which, by the way, is I think what still most people believe anorexia is. They, they, it's, it's, it's cis, white, high income, female, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all know what we're going through around issues like that right now as well. And, you know, even though there's study after study that shows that uh, your starting weight has nothing to do with what your illness is with anorexia, and I mentioned anorexia because that's what I had. These things were, of course, also true for bulimia and binge eating disorder. Um, nonetheless, um, any, anyone who's working in the field would know, I mean, you get a call from an insurance company and they say, well, this person's BMI is 23, how can they have anorexia? And it's a crazy question. There are study after study showing that no matter, whatever your starting weight is, the weight loss itself, not your weight, is what determines the illness. Um, but still, we, uh, we suffer through that. So in the midst of all of that, it's a really a rare guy who's gonna wake up and say, I think I'm gonna go in for eating disorder treatment. Pretty much the men that show up are either younger men, 13, 14, 12, whose parents bring them in, or men who are over 30, who have achieved some level of maturity, some level of self-worth, so that admitting to these behaviors and diagnoses doesn't make them feel like they have entered into a, you know, a world that has no place for them. I mean, I myself never knew I had anorexia while I was suffering from my anorexia. It was never diagnosed, it was never mentioned. Um, the invisibility was 100%. So if you'd said to me, you should get treatment for your anorexia, well, I wouldn't even know what you were talking about. How was it defined for you then? And I don't, and again, I feel like I'm not using the best words today, but what what was the explanation? There wasn't one. So in, in the summer when, when, when the, my eating disorder was starting to really smash me, um, my, my parents knew that I was not doing well. They sent me to see an analyst, a child analyst, because that's what people did back then. And uh, I, I mean, the guy was, I, I don't know what to say about the guy. I know that the moment I walked in the room that I was never going to tell him one true thing. Really? Yeah. I mean, he was so authoritarian, so dismissive. It was, it was you know, it was horrible. It was just the worst of, of psychiatry. Um, so I made up some stories about my parents because I knew analysts like to hear that stuff. And uh, so I just kind of got through the summer that way. And he, of course, never asked me a single question about eating, about body, about nothing, nothing. So that just kind of, I just, I just looked at that as something to get away from. And the rest of it, you know, I was engaging in daily behaviors. I'm running every day. I'm starving. I'm only eating white food. I'm weighing myself every hour. I mean, nobody said a word. Just never came up. So not that I want to go from when it started all the way to the end, but how did it sort of come into light that you were struggling with this eating disorder? And how did you then find a way to get treatment? 
I got first very unlucky, then I got very lucky. Um, I'm as lucky as anyone you're going to get to meet. Well, that, maybe that's, that's a little arrogant. I'm one of the luckier. I'm one of the luckier people out there. That's how I feel. Um, so let me, let me just uh, take back the other more grand comment. Um, I, I ended up at med school when I was 19 um, because I just kept accelerating through things, not developing relationships, starving myself, just keeping on going, and. Uh, it was a disaster when I got to med school. I was living in a dorm with no kitchen. I had to eat in the hospital cafeteria. Um, so I just started to, I went from uh, plateauing to just falling off the edge of the earth. And of course I didn't know what was happening. I literally, of course, all, all I knew was that I couldn't function. So I, I went to the Dean and told him I had to quit because I couldn't function. And he was wildly, um, dismissive, mean, um, derogatory, called me, said things, just terrible things to me, throwing my life away. I'm not, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, okay, maybe, I don't know, but I can't function. I mean, I didn't know why. So then I left there and I went home and told my, my family and they, they were just, I, I love to quote my grandmother. She goes, she goes, Mark, what are you, stupid? <laughs> So, you know, this is a classic thing, first person of family to go to med school, that whole, you know, thing and blah, blah, blah. So at that point now I'm at loose ends. I've quit school. I'm 20 at this point, I had a birthday. I don't have a college degree. Um, I don't have anywhere to live. Um, so I went back to Baltimore and um, I had seen they were putting on the play The Wizard of Oz. It was a roving campus production. And um, this being the time and past when nobody, you couldn't rent a movie or stream a movie or see a movie. The only time you saw The Wizard of Oz was on television every year. Right. And I loved it. And, you know, the way anorexia works, it spares some things. And one thing that spared for me was my ability to memorize every word of The Wizard of Oz. So they needed to, they, they put an ad in the school paper. They needed people to help them write the script from memory. So I'm like, perfect for me. So I went and I, I met the people putting the show together and they, and they said, yeah, yeah, you can do that for sure. And I met a guy there and he lived in a house with four of the guys and they had a couch that was free and I moved in with them and I moved in and lived on that couch for a little while. Uh, three months later, I got a room. It was really good. <laughs> and and uh, that was a community of sorts. It was the first time I'd had anybody to spend time with. And, and the acting community was a fun group of people. And after I wrote the script, I got the part in the play. I was the mayor of Munchkin City. Um, oh, Mark. <laughs> I, have, I, have an, I have an authority thing. I do. <laughs> and, and I met my wife to be doing this. And she was in the Lullaby League. She was, in fact, the entire Lullaby League. It was a, it was a shoestring production. And... Um, and, and I have no idea why she fell for me. I mean, I don't know. One never knows. But I felt hard for her and she, she took me in. And this is where it gets the lucky part. Where she was a chef and she was working her way through college cooking. And she said to me that she would cook for me and be my girlfriend, but only if I ate everything she made. And I, had, I really had to make a choice between my eating disorder and between love. Um, and I really had to choose love. 
can can I interrupt for yes. one moment, Mark? As you started this story, I'm remembering because I've heard you share this at conferences. And number one, it is a beautiful story. The other thing I want to say though is, and I didn't mean to interrupt such a beautiful story, but wow, it sounds like at that point you were so deep in the eating disorder, but still had just enough of a healthy self to pick love over the eating disorder. By the way, I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not saying it was overnight. You're like, okay, I pick love. Here we go. Let's go on with life. But the, the thing when people are so deep in their eating disorder, there is nothing that comes above it. And the fact that you said, you know what, though, wait a minute, that's that's really remarkable, Mark. I apologize. Keep going. No, I think you're right. That That, that is part. You know, we all know that eating disorders aren't a thing. They're, everybody's got their own thing in their own way, in their own way of being. And, and that was, for me, a fortunate part of it, that, that, that this other spark was also there. Mm. And it really turned around then. I mean, yeah. <laughs> she kept me at arm's length for about a year. <laughs> She wanted to check it out, make sure I was going to keep my promise. Yet the love story um, still continues. Yeah, she's still, yep, yep. It's been mere 45 years. She's still, she's still trying to figure it out, right? She's still thinking, do I want this? I'll give it 50 years. <laughs> no. What she's great about is once she's all in, she's all in. I've never had to worry about that. It's been wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. I'm wondering... Because, by the way, it's not that you are lucky, it's that you are you, and that's what you attracted. And by the way, I say this with everybody, it's not about luck. Things, we, we bring people into our lives. Hmm. What, what do you say, though, because I'm thinking of clients right now in my head that don't they are so deep in their eating disorder or so deep into their depression or their anxiety that they cannot see. There probably are people around them, like your wife, Mark, that want to say, here's a hand. I'm offering it. Take it. But they can't. What, what are your thoughts on that? Totally fantastic question. Core thoughts. What I believe, based on my life first and then on my experience, is that every single person with an eating disorder has to answer one question, which is who will feed me? Because the essence of the disorder is you cannot feed yourself. That's just what's true, right? That's, I don't mean that in a philosophical way. It's just a true fact. Um, and so nobody's going to get out of it by themselves. So I constantly, when I work with someone, just try to stay on that. Not that there's something wrong with you, it's that there's this thing you can't do. Um, you know, often for a therapist, from my perspective, that's a big deal um, because that therapist sometimes is that person who ends up with that trust. Is, you know, it's one thing to be 14. It's another thing to be, you know, 34. Um, so often it's a therapist. Sometimes if you get lucky, it's a spouse. Sometimes it's a parent. Sometimes it's a friend. Um, sometimes it's a support group. You don't know. But at some level... If you, get, if you can't get to that level of trust with someone, somehow, some way, you, you are in trouble. I think, you know, when, when we talk about people who you know, really have a 
a terrible case of the disorder. This is why we have residential centers. This is why we have places like this. It's not because anybody's like, oh, this is great. You'll really like this experience. It's because at some point you go, okay, I have to surrender completely and, I, and I'll let myself do it. So I, I do think people, all of us, have to ask that question. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's literal, literal, I'm sorry, literal, forgive me everyone, and figuratively. Who's gonna help feed me literally and who is gonna feed me figuratively? Meaning who is gonna feed my soul? Because by the way, I heard you use the word trust. You have to trust that person. Trust is very, very difficult for a lot of people, especially people when they're struggling with an eating disorder. So I know that when I was a clinical director for a residential program, I said to the staff all the time, they are not a diagnosis walking through the door. They are a human being that is struggling with a diagnosis. It is in so important you treat them like a human being. That's how they're gonna take your hand. If I had somebody walk through the doors and I just said, oh, here's a bulimic. Hey, bulimic, do this, do What? They're not gonna trust me. But if I say, I see you, I hear you. I know you're struggling with this. Here's how I wanna help. It's very different. Totally, totally agree with you. It's, um. I, I like you. I, I, I like to use the word connection. I mean, I, I, in my mind, I think eating disorders are disorders of disconnection. The first thing that disconnects is the mind and the body. The second thing that disconnects is thoughts and feelings. The third thing that disconnects is me from everyone I love. The fourth thing that disconnects is me from me. And unfortunately, it's hard to build it back that way. <laughs> Sometimes that connection to the other has to get formed before you feel connected to yourself. What gave you the courage then to accept your wife's, at that time, your soon-to-be girlfriend, to accept her hand and her food and her love? And the reason why I, I want to point out that it was your, it was your now wife is because we have to create that community. We don't, I, I was 19 when I started my eating disorder. I did go home from college. My family, they were the people. Not everybody has that. So, and, and by the way, I'm not saying your parents were or were not there to support it, but you have to create that. But how do you take that courageous step to say, okay, I, I'm going to take a leap of faith and trust you? I'm going to sidebar and then come back. I just want everyone to know my parents are fantastic. I, yeah, it, it's, they just didn't know. Right. So here's, I mean, I will say this in addition to everything else. Um, I spent uh, two and a half years in intentional community um, in, in between this time after, my, after I finished medical school and did my internship and quit. I lived on a farm. Um, I, we, we only ate what we cooked. Um, we were developing greenhouses on Cape Cod. Um, my, my wife danced with the wallflower order. Um, I, I, it wasn't just her. If it had been just her, all just the two of us alone on a boat, I don't know. That would have been, that would have been harder. 
Um, we, we did go out and say, let's find a community to belong to. And frankly, this just talking to you, I mean, what sustains me currently also is this just recovered eating disorder community. That's very important to me because um, this doesn't, it doesn't ever end, right? You don't ever wake up one day and go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm all done now, everything's better. It's, you know, everything's the process. So I do want to say, find a person you trust, but also find a community you trust um, because that it, it again is so very difficult to uh, just for two people to try to do this. You know, for Lisa, again, we were surrounded by other people to help us. Um, as we were supported as a couple by many, many people. And in that external influence, because I didn't yet have the internal strength that said to me, yes, this is who you should be with. Yes, this is good for you. Yes, this is great. It made a huge difference. Yeah. I want to make two comments. One, now I'm going to make a sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> so when you said, and I'm paraphrasing now, you never wake up and you're fully over it. I want to just make sure that I understand what you were saying, because the way I interpret that is, is that it's not that you're never over the eating disorder. It's that life is always moving and complex and you never were never um, immune from life stressors. And I know how I have stayed recovered for, you know, it's been about 25 years that I, I can honestly say that I've been recovered for that long is that. I am constantly reaching out because life stressors keep happening, but I've learned skills to say, here's what I'm going to do. So I don't know if that, if you resonate with that or if I misunderstood or. No, totally. No, I, yeah, exactly. No, I didn't mean that the eating disorder doesn't go away. Um, what I mean is my ability to see things accurately to you know, I, I don't trust all my perceptions still. Um, that got me in trouble once. <laughs> um, so I, I, as you said, I want to reach out and ask, do I have that one right? Um, you know, because not about food right now. I don't think it will be again, but you know, it's, I still have my same brain. Um, it's still, it's still, there's still my traits. It's still, it's still me. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to point out is, um, I, I am a very emotional person, and I say that in a positive way. I embrace it. It's who I am. Um, and while you were talking about the community that you and Lisa, you know, were living with and whatnot, I felt tears in my eyes because all I could feel was in my body was the beauty of stripping away all the external crap in the world, excuse the expression, the, you know, the thin ideal, the who has a better car, who has a better title, who looks better on Facebook, which of course that wasn't around back then, but all these external things and you and your wife brought it back to community, earth, inner self, building inner self first or rebuilding and then going back out into the world with all of these beautiful internal resources. 
And that's very special. That's sometimes what I say when clients are coming into treatment. I say, we're going to stop it all. It'll be there when you get back, but you're going to have a different relationship to it because we're going to put everything on pause. And that's just what I was feeling, Mark. Like, it sounds like what you did was really powerful. It's super accurate what you just said. Yes, it was incredibly powerful. Um, it, it, it wasn't in some way like getting, like, 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 like just restarting, as you say. Um, it was, I was coming from a different place. I had gotten off the treadmill of life, um, which as we all know, <laughs> is pretty wearisome. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and uh, it was just, and I really, by the way, when, when we did, went and did that, I really didn't know where we were going. You know, because you, you never do, of course, you pretend you do. But in this particular case, I just knew, as I'd known when I'd left med school, that uh, to not take a break would be foolish. And, and, I, and I would say to everybody and I, I, who, who deals with this disorder, um, stop. <laughs> stop. The, the, the world is, is not kind, um, particularly in this way. It's definitely not kind to people with eating disorders. Um, and uh, it makes them sicker. It wants to make them sicker. It doesn't matter what kind of disorder you have. You know, binge eating disorder, you get yelled at for one thing. If you have anorexia, you get picked on for something else. It's everything in between. Um, so, I mean, getting over that fear um, is super important. Um, can, I, can I interrupt for a moment? And this is going to sound, uh, I'm not sure how this is going to come out, so I'm just going to say it. You were saying how the world is not kind. Like if you're restricting, you get this. If you're binging, you get that. How was the world not kind if on top of this, you're a male with an eating disorder? Because I want to get back to how do we support men out there. By the way, you had said something very interesting in your paperwork, and I am so glad you said it. Men are not immune to cultural norms and stereotypes and whatnot. And you talked about the rock and roll stars mm, yeah, from yeah. when you were growing up. I look at the, I see, I see these rock and roll, do they call them rock and roll stars anymore? <laughs> what do they call them, Mark? I see these musicians now and they're men and women, but the men, they're very, very thin. They have the same look they had in the 60s and the 70s. And I worry about it. men are just as subjected to the thin ideal or the, you know, six pack muscles. So say something about that. Yeah, let me let me address both. I mean, I think, yeah, rock and roll definitely is what drives that thin ideal. I mean, for instance, in all of the writings about the death of Michael Jackson and Prince, did anybody mention how thin they were? I mean, when they talk about how sick they got, and you read about like with Prince, like so much time on the road and he wore himself down. Yeah, he also starved himself to death. Um, he went about 120 pounds when he died. Um, and same is true for Michael Jackson. I mean, and his body broke down. And, and, and you, we literally are watching these people starve themselves and have their bodies break down. And nobody is saying, hello, hello. Um, so in that way, certainly men, the invisibility continues. Um, 
last year's word of the year, Webster's always has a word of the year. Last year was swole. You even know the word S-W-O-L-E? Never heard of it. Well, swole is when you build so much muscle, you get past like beefy built up, you get swole. <laughs> it's actually a thing. Um, Not only is it a thing, but did you just say it was the word of the year? Word of the year. Um, so and, and when you go into gyms and you study these guys and you give them questionnaires, what you find out is they're obsessed with food. Everything they do is about food. It's all, and that's, and they, you go to their bulletin boards and they're talk, they don't talk about, they talk about, they don't talk about their workouts. They talk about what they're eating. And, uh, you know, they're all going to any one of these gyms, they're all selling these products that you're supposed to eat. And again, completely disordered eating, completely life-threatening, and absolutely ne never discussed. And, and that's the particular cruelty, I think, that, that, that men face with it, that they can engage in public without a single word ever being said to them. I, I'm still stuck on the word of the year and and it's it's so it's it is so you wonder why there's so many eating disorders. The word of the year has to do with somebody's body type. I know nicely said, nicely said. Right? That's, <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. That's it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Let's just say it again so we're all clear about this. The word of the year is about somebody's body type. Yeah, isn't that wild? How, how do you use, if or do you, being a recovered male in the field to educate do, or do, doctors, therapists, other people? Like, what, what, what do we do, Mark, to get the word out so the stigma is taken away a little bit and the invisibility? I love the word of the invisibility. I mean, if you wanted a list of career disappointments... <laughs> Certainly, the fact that this remains as invisible as it is is very difficult for me. Um, on a personal level, I feel like I shouted from the rooftops, um, but that's not enough. Clearly, it's not enough. Um, clearly, we need large organizational shifts, large social shifts, and as we all know, those are very, very hard to do. I think talking to parents is important. Um, so I, I've tried to work that. We've tried going to schools. I've tried talking to coaches. They look at me like I have three heads. Um, it's very hard to get people to devote their careers to this in the research world. There's no, um, there's no careers out there in studying men with eating disorders. There's no universities giving out um, jobs in that. There's no NIH giving out grants in it. So to my mind, I mean, and again, we get into somewhat complex, complicated ground here. Um, we've tried sometimes in the male world to wonder how we tie ourselves to all the other people who don't get eating disorder treatment, all the marginalized, um, poor people of color. You know, it's, it's a, of course a huge population of people with food insecurity. Um, but of course the male issue is somewhat different so it's, it's hard to, to, to directly get there. I do think, however, it's important for, for the sort of males and eating sort of world 
that we, we are starting to at least get a better idea of the context in the sense of how eating disorders have gotten so focused on one population subgroup. And, you know, I would say it's not just men, it's probably 80% of people with eating disorders. And we don't even know how many there are, right? We don't know where they are. Again, nobody's out there trying to count them. Um, so I, I don't want to sound too hopeless on it, but I do think that it is a, it is a large task. For me, I'm personally right now trying to pivot back to the diagnostic system itself. Um, I don't believe there's any other diagnosis in the DSM that includes gender. Um, I do think that that's, that's a place to start. Um, I do think the next generation is <laughs> a lot better at this stuff than my generation. I completely agree with that. You know, I think even the notion of noticing non-binary and, and trying to deal with that is, a, is amazing. I mean, that really starts to reframe the conversation. Um, there's a, a, a couple researchers who I love. Gerald Calzo is my favorite because he's been teaching me. He says, he talks about the construction of gender through um, ethnicity, through biological issues, through um, social structure issues, other ways and trying to push hard against the notion of male as a thing. Um, and you know, part of me thinks, gee, you know, I'm, I'm a guy and I had this, but then I also look at, at that I haven't really made all that much progress in, in getting the word out. And maybe there it's important to change how we look at it and change the construction of these illnesses and the construction of gender and look at are there other things we can do to, to try to push the conversation to a better place. I actually think that there is still, and this is just my personal experience, there is still a lot of wanting to turn a blind eye towards all of eating disorders. Um, you know, you said how you've tried all these things to get out there and give talks and all this, and it sort of falls on deaf ears. I, I run a center in Boston, which is filled with colleges and universities. I could go to a different school every day and give a talk and very few schools accept the offer. Some, a lot, actually, I want to take a step back. I do give a lot of talks at universities in Boston, but there, there's a handful of them that are like, no, mm -mm, we don't really need that. And I'm like, what? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I've had personal experience with that. I, 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 I worked at the, I've, I worked at a college um, mental health center for a little while um, and ended up having to do all the eating disorder work myself um, just cause yeah, it just, you know, you just couldn't, you just couldn't make it work there, which is amazing. And I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think you're right. We do turn a blind eye to it. I think, I think there's a certain invisibility that I, I felt it but I bet everybody with an eating disorder feels it. And I think, you know, maybe there's obviously a spectrum again, but I, I would bet, look, I, not, not to go, well, I could go however deep we want to go into this. I mean, for, the way I think of it is eating disorders are disorders of secrets, period. All behaviors happen in secret. Everything is secret. You can't ever tell anybody what you're doing. They're disorders of secrets. And of course, those secrets keep us sick but they also keep us invisible. 
because we're not saying, we're not telling, and nobody's looking for it. And the people, the only people to talk to you about your weight, right, are your doctors. Um, and they come in and they go, oh, you lost five pounds. That's great. Exactly. You know, I, I, I call it, I mean, I, I, I talk to doctors a lot about this. That's, you know, this probably the largest group I, I speak to locally. And, and they, they, most of them think I'm nuts. And, and when you're a, a psychiatrist and you're talking to a group of pediatricians, they don't really have a lot to, they really don't want to hear what you have to think about growth, growth curves. But let me tell you, can I tell you a funny story just because it's so perfect for it. So I have this kid that comes in who's been in the 80th percentile on growth curves for height and weight, whole life. And now 80th percentile height, 20th percentile weight. So I call it pediatrician, try to be you know, collaborative. And I'm like, well, we got to get him back to the 80th percentile. <laughs> and he goes, well, why do we have to get them back there? Why, why don't we get to the 50th percentile? I said, well, because they were always at the 80th that's who they are. And he said, well, no one should be above the 50th percentile. And, and I, thought, so I, I told her exactly how I said it. But what I said effectively was, do you understand how a bell curve works? <laughs> I, I, it, it was just so bizarre. Um, do you know, and forgive me for interrupting, do you know what is going through my mind though right now? Can you imagine all of uh, this is where I get so many clients sitting on my couch where they say, I was told by the doctor I had to lose weight. I was overweight. So a doctor saying, well, nobody should be over the 50th percentile. Right there, you've got a problem because every person, their bone structure is different. Their metabolism is different. What they have exposure to food is like everything is different. And it sends shivers up my spine when you say, when a doctor says nobody should ever be above 50%. You've just stigmatized a bunch of really vulnerable kids. Yeah. I mean, when I, I have to say, when I give talks to, when I, when I do, I, I've been doing parent support groups for a long time which I love doing and uh, keep me honest, but I have to say, I have to fairly often give the apology tour at the start of it because I know that every one of them has been told that their kids, okay to lose weight. It's not okay to gain weight. I know that they have parents have been stigmatized around their kids' weight. Uh, I mean, it's just, I feel, I mean, my profession has such a long way to go in this, I mean, the notion of a weight-inclusive, disease-focused, not a weight-focused, I mean, certainly for people with binge eating disorder, oh my goodness. I mean, you, I'm sure you know this. I mean, one of the reasons people with binge eating disorders have health problems is that they don't ever go to see the doctor because what's the point? No matter what they say, the doctor's gonna say, well, you should lose weight. If they went in there and said, I've been bleeding out of my leg for the last six months, the doctor would say, well, you should lose some weight. I mean, it's just terrible. So yeah, anyway, I, that's all. There's probably a whole other podcast. Of it's a whole other podcast. I mean, the the whole idea of, you know, doesn't, I, I now I'm going to go off on a total tangent and, I, and I, I need to be careful and bring it back. But, you know, talk about high blood pressure. It's not always 
brought on by weight. It's brought on by stressors, by, by the environment that you're living in. And all the doctors say is, mm, you got to lose some weight. Um, Jen Gaudiani, who I don't know if you... Of course, yeah. You know, over the edge, fantastic. And, and she's been working on the question of, is it the dieting that causes the diabetes, not the weight itself? Is it this crazy restrictive up and down thing that everybody does? I don't know the answer to that question, but at least she's asking it. And these are questions that have never been asked before. Um, what, what's, what, are we, what are we really doing? I know. Now I feel like I want to do a whole panel <laughs> podcast. Like I have so many people, Mark, you're in the circle. We're going to do a big one. You know, there's so many different places I want to go. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of change gears a little bit. You and I were talking before we started recording and it goes back to the sidebar we did at the beginning. You know, talking about life is always evolving and it is important. I often say to my clients that I stay I have been rec stayed recovered for as long as I have because I'm always curious. I'm always curious about myself. And as I said a little while earlier, I am a different person than I was five years ago. I'm probably a different person than I was five days ago. Like, look at everything that we're going through right now in the world with racism and COVID and all this stuff. You did say that there was a part of your recovery process that sort of kind of clicked into place, but not until years later. I know that there are times when I sit with a client and all of a sudden I get this visceral reaction and I think, wow, that actually fits in my own puzzle. Because even though my eating disorder, I'm recovered, there's still parts of self that I'm exploring that I don't understand. And so do you mind, and again, I know this was a quick turn, but I want to make sure we get this in. What, what was your experience like that? Well, as people probably know, there has begun a discussion of the use of psychedelics for mental health. And part of this discussion has involved eating disorders. And I have an experience with psychedelics, which I have edited historically out of conversations about myself. And I edit them out, of course, because you're not supposed to talk about those things if you're a professional. Um, gets you in trouble. But the truth was when I first went to a talk on this, I experienced shame, pretty profound shame, because I was listening to a woman speak, and she was speaking about something that was true for me, but I had never spoken out loud about it. So when you, you know, spend part of your life talking about yourself and you realize that, oops, I left that part out, um, it felt shameful to me. It felt like I had been inauthentic. And then that triggered a memory of a horrible acid trip I had had in high school that I realized in that moment was, in fact, my trigger for the beginning of all my behaviors. And that experience and its aftermath was literally the thing that, it was a traumatic event for me. It just threw me into it. And I know a lot of people have traumatic events, very different sorts, that kick them into their disorders. 
And in that moment, all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, I'm someone that had a traumatic event that kicked me into my eating disorder. And that's such a normal thing. And my whole story and the beginning of my story now has this whole different alignment that it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a thing. And, 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 and then I was able to sort of remember other experiences during my life. And, and, I, and I realized that what had happened to me was of course not shameful. What had happened to me was painful and traumatic. And I was only 17 years old. And I've been holding it my whole life this just mistake I'd made when I was 17 that had triggered something that I didn't even know I had. And, and when I, and when this happened and I was able to rewrite my story in my head with more sense without the same shame and without the same need to disguise, it, it really became easier to be me. And, and so I, I wouldn't say my eating disorder changed but my understanding of it changed and my understanding of myself changed and my forgiveness to myself changed. And it was very powerful. And that happened five years ago. I mean, we're not talking about distant past. I mean, and so yeah, I mean, I, I truly believe awareness comes to us, our understandings change and they really can help us have a much better experience of ourselves. There's so many little things or big things that I want to point out from that. First of all, people invalidate a traumatic experience because it's not what they think they've been taught trauma is. And they forget about those little parts along the way that are a part of their narrative. If it is not an assault, the loss of somebody, a fire, something that you can say that was a big trauma, they don't include it often in their story. And the fact that shame was buried in you since you were 17 years old. Number one breaks my heart. Number two, though, is a beautiful realization in this phase of your life that you came to this understanding. Again, this is what I'm talking about. If you stay present, you are learning. We are learning about ourselves all the time. And it's really powerful. Thank you for saying all that. It, it, it does mean a lot. Um, and it's very true what you're saying. Um, all of that. Yeah. Shame is, I, I'm going to use a very powerful word. It can be deadly. Yeah. I mean, anytime I can get rid of a piece of shame, I am a really happy guy. Um, I, have found, I have found it does me no good. I say to my clients all the time, shame doesn't serve you. Shame is an experience, but if you don't get curious about it and use it as a way to understand, it is just going to slowly kill you, eat away at you. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think of I think in my own way, um, which are things that I've, I've been taught, that, that shame is the opposite of growth. Um, so shame makes us dive deep into ourselves and hide from all the things that would help us become who we really can be. 
I am very grateful that you came to that realization. It just creates another dimension of who you are, the work that you're doing. Um, it is just amazing. And Mark, I, I hate to start winding down this podcast, but we do have to start winding down. Mark, as always, I end with a question. So your question today is, if you were a character in a movie, book, or television show, what genre would you be living in? Probably science fiction. Really? Say, can you say a little bit about that? Is it just that you love science fiction or? I do love science fiction. Um, science fiction has a, has a somewhat dystopian piece to it, right? That's, that's part of the nature of it. Science fiction is sort of like a horror story with hope built into it. And um, because things are sort of always going wrong and they're having to go to some other planet or your own country is falling apart or something awful, that's usually the premise in there. But somehow it often contains ways um, to get through things to find better things. Very timely for you to, to say that. Mark, again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate you and having you on the podcast today. So again, thank you for doing this. You're really welcome. Thanks to you too. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I look forward to talking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.